Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Take any international trip, and the tourist trap restaurants near the must-see landmarks will all be hawking the, quote, national dish you simply can't miss. Greek souvlaki, Japanese ramen, Italian pasta, Mexican mole, leaving aside the question of whether a restaurant with a laminated English menu could possibly serve good food, we must ask what makes a dish national. Must it be an old recipe? A common one? Unique to that place? Food writer Anya von Bremsen poses these questions and more in her new book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. Beginning in Paris with the 18th century inauguration of modern French cuisine, and searching for the invention, or perhaps congelation, of pot au feu, von Bremsen travels across oceans and continents in search of what defines a country's cuisine, unraveling notions of identity, nationhood, and politics in the process. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Anya. Great to be with you, thanks. So what makes a national dish for you? A long process of nationalization and I think before that, we should ask what makes a country a nation. It's, it's kind of an unusual question because we assume that countries always existed as long as language existed, that nations are somehow primordial. But uh, academics debunked the theory long ago because uh, imagine in, like, in mid-17th century, there was no Italy, uh, there was no Germany, there was no Japan as we know it. Uh, there was certainly nothing like Azerbaijan or Uzbekistan. So nation is a fairly recent phenomenon. And once a nation establishes itself, and the whole idea sort of dates back, let's say, to the French Revolution, which transformed an absolutist kingdom, which was ruled uh, by a monarchy, into a nation, in the contemporary sense, ruled in the name of equal citizens. Once a nation happens... It needs to do some nation building, right? It needs a national anthem. What makes it a nation, right? Uh, for the citizens. It needs all this like patriotic attributes, anthem, a sports team, a national epic that might not even belong to, to this country. You know, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of stealing of national epics. And then, you know, it needs a national dish. Mm, someone wrote an interesting piece in Academic about the, the nation of Belize which is fairly recent, and like within 10 years of a nation establishing itself, at least now, there's a national cookbook. And the national cookbook establishes the canon of national dishes. And these are not even necessarily the dishes that, 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 that really exist and the people are eating. Sometimes they are. And these national canons, like any, any canon, is very problematic, right? It's like who makes the cut? Which dish makes the cut? Why is this dish promoted? over another dish that for some reason is forgotten. And you forget how much sort of male-white dominance goes into it. For instance, let's take France. You know, the national food canon was all established by white chefs who cooked for the aristocracy. So it's a very complicated thing. And then governments, currently governments intervene uh, because there's such a thing as a national brand. So France is a brand, Japan is a brand. And let's do like a dish like ramen. It's part of the cool Japan brand. So someone is putting money into promoting it. And companies that make ramen are benefiting from it. So it seems like something very innocent and innocuous, right? Oh, a national dish, sure, for sure. 
whatever ramen or pizza, but there's just so much history and so much effort and so much that goes into it. And that's why I wrote a book called The National Dish, just to see how this stuff is constructed. Yeah, I'm curious about your own relationship to like national dishes since you came to America from the Soviet Union, which no longer exists as a nation, and even so as kind of a conglomerate of nations. You know, how did your thinking about national dishes evolve from when you, you know, first ate borscht, say? Well, I'm a child of the empire, of one of the last, you know, super powerful, super power empires. Um, so we had a very different relationship to national dishes because we didn't have one national dish. We had an Uzbek national dish, a Ukrainian national dish, a Kazakh national dish, and all these uh, smaller nations were part of the conglomerate of the USSR. And they were kind of imagined and controlled from Moscow. And it was very often Moscow that decided who gets which national dish. Because let's say the five Central Asian stands, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, um, they didn't exist in their current form, before the Bolsheviks decided to carve out nations out of a larger entity called Turkmenistan. But it was still controlled by the empire. So our cuisine was extremely multicultural. Well, there was not much food to start with. <laughs> there was, but but the, the fiction was that, yes, ours was a great empire, and like all empires, it sort of emphasized the diversity. And then the empire went bust. As I published my first cookbook, which was called Please to the Table, and it was about the cuisines of the USSR. So imagine, you know, as the book goes into print, you know, which says, well, you know, the, the, the cooking of the Soviet Union, all these different republics, the republics become independent nations. And then 10 years later, they all have cookbooks and national identities and national cuisines. So I sort of experienced firsthand what it's like uh, to just see in real time a real nation building. You know, there is a like a dark side to these national dishes in that they're used, you know, by nation states to establish their brand, their borders, their identity. But it also really establishes like a home and in a lot of ways can like return a sense of belonging to people who maybe didn't really belong in their original quote unquote state. I'm thinking of like Neapolitan pizza. Neapolitans were essentially forced by poverty and a lot of economic changes to flee to the United States and then brought it back. Well, yes and no. Pizza pizza remained in Naples. The thing is that Naples wasn't Italy. Naples was the capital of the kingdom of two Sicilies, and it had a great self-esteem. It was the seat of the Bourbons, and then the North kind of came and just took it all away from them as Italy unified. And, but pizza is a very interesting example. It was, until very recently, not any kind of national dish. The northern Italians wrote about it with scorn and disgust. Like uh, Collodi, the creator of Pinocchio, he wrote something about it like it was complicated filth, you know, with flies, you know. It was a whole part of kind of othering the South and dismissing it as like something like in Africa. And pizza was, in fact, food of very poor people. It cost only one soldo, like a cent. And Naples was a tremendously overcrowded city. In the 19th century, it had 10 times the density of Victorian London. Imagine. So pizza was called by Neapolitans il pronto soccorso dello stomaco, which means the first aid of the stomach. Uh, so when the Neapolitans left and the southerners left, and they started eventually opening pizza joints, 
in the States uh, and introduced pizza to the Due America with you know, North, North and South America. It probably took off in exile before it really took off in the rest of Italy. Uh, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I think it's so interesting too, in the way that it was a poor person's food that has since become part of the national story. Like, there's a bunch of other examples in your book too. Like ramen, for instance, um, was just like a cart food. What do you think is going on behind that with elevating a poor person's food to this stature? I've looked at this phenomenon a lot, and actually a lot of it goes back to the recessions in the 20th century and in the 21st century. Um, because imagine, people are poor, they're World War One, World War Two. they're happy to eat white bread, they're happy to eat processed food. The whole kind of nostalgia for the land and for, you know, the grandmother's cuisine, no, it's, it's also manufactured, a lot of it. When you look at what Italians ate during unification, and they had all these parliamentary inquests that looked at diets, they were horrifying. Uh, when you look at the state of Italian family in the South, when you look at all the incest and rape and abandonments of spouses, it's also horrifying. So it's a little bit of a myth, you know, about like, oh, you know, poor people live so nicely and eat, you know, dark greens and dark grains. But um, the recession in like, let's say there's 80s economic boom, and then there's a recession in the 90s, there's a recession in 2008, but especially in the 90s, it made this $10 or, you know, at that point, $3 foods that you could actually adorn with interesting ingredients. Uh, they turned them into something that, that uh, all the people could eat and be proud of. So ramen goes from something uh, at first, you know, slightly industrial and fueling the post-war reconstruction into sort of an object um, of people's pilgrimages in the 80s during the boom years into sort of an object of handcrafted devotion. So ramen becomes uh, shishified and gourmetified and auteur, you know, produced by auteurs. And weirdly, the same thing happens to pizza in Naples, and I'm sure a lot of other foods. So you have something cheap that can also be a vessel for creativity, and it can be part of the national brand. This is how these foods become so popular. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about your experience of the other Italian food and finding sort of the origins of pasta. Um, I was surprised, for instance, to learn that original Neapolitan pasta, or maybe not original, but one of the first recipes for it was like a sweet food. Um, and then you had this incredible, maybe kitschy, maybe slightly manufactured experience of eating pasta puttanesca in a former brothel, which was just like, I think encapsulated just so much about how we express our own feelings about our own national foods. No, it was amazing. Well, pasta, pasta, yes, pasta was uh, not something for the people. Anything with white flour or white rice or anything like that was not for the people until uh, processing improved. But then it turned into the food of the Neapolitan poor. You ate it by hands. Uh, there's all these images of you know, the Neapolitan poor eating the macaroni. Uh, you know, these long strands by hands. And then the tomato comes about in the 1760s. You know, Naples is where pasta first meets tomato. Then you have all these different variations on pasta with tomato, pasta con pomodoro, including the pasta puttanesca, which means the pasta of course. And we were staying in, in, in Naples in, in the very rough uh, quarter of former brothels. 
Uh, and uh, the people were really not friendly. And it was very hard to get any kind of cooking lesson. You know, they spoke in a thick Neapolitan dialect. Camorra, the Neapolitan mafia, was very present there for a time. So the whole attitude was like very masculine, scary dogs. But then I found these two uh, ladies who were preserving the Neapolitan culture of the Vasho. And Vasho is an old house uh it's kind of like a Neapolitan tenement, you know, where, where this overcrowding was happening. And uh, they they cooked the pasta puttanesca for me while, you know, I was looking at the prices for girls at this former brothel. So it was kind of this uncanny comical moment, you know, like how much more, quote unquote, authentic can you get and how kind of laughably so. Yeah, especially because it's like, is it really authentic? Is it really, you know, like pasta puttanesca? All these questions. Actually, it was it was very interesting because the lady who was a former uh, sex worker, a trans person, uh, explained to me that uh, pasta puttanesca was uh, a code word for when a client came in that he wanted a girl or or a boy. So you ordered a puttanesca and and and. The person they wanted to hire hired along, and maybe you got an extra bite on the side as a. <laughs> no, no, they got the percentage of the bar and the twenty percent of the food. So yeah, I was explained everything with with great uh, with meticulous detail. Yeah, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like the flip side of this because Naples is an interesting story in which you have like a lot of um, downtrodden, oppressed people sort of being elevated to this national dish like being a point of pride being part of like a multi-billion dollar industry um but on the flip side you've got something like rice in tokyo which was used as an example by imperial japan with some like pretty awful connotations of purity white supremacy yeah and white supremacy yeah so i'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that about like the inverse of maybe the neapolitan story or i don't know if it's really an inverse it's not exactly Inverse, I would say, you know, all the nationalist myths have this dark underside, uh, right? So the whole Neapolitan story, always oh, like we triumphed and we showed everybody, and you know, it's it's, it's more benign. Uh, but uh, the Japanese, the Japanese nationalism was fairly virulent and um, very imperialist. Obviously, during the Meiji period, again, Japan is like Italy was a collection of disparate disparate places that with no kind of national idea and no national cuisines. And then around the same time as the Italian unification happens, you know, the major restoration kind of creates and self mythologizes this great state of Japan with the emperor as a, as its center, which is kind of an invented tradition as well. So rice becomes this symbol of purity of the Japanese self. And it's also slightly an invented tradition because all the Japanese children learn in school, uh, they always ate rice, you know, their ancestors always ate rice. Well, they actually ate dark grains, uh, rice, even the rice farmers. There's a thing in the Kurosawa film, uh, somewhere there's a scene where the rice farmer cannot afford to eat rice, like only the privileged classes eat white grains, white pasta, white bread. Um, so it's all a bit of a myth. And the interesting thing is the Japanese are kind of turning away from it. While they continue to promote it, while it's part of their identity, they, uh, they're eating baguettes and uh, German breads and pasta and all sorts of things. 
without even thinking about it. I did some funny polling at Japanese food floors of department stores. I would say, well, what, what do you think of Japanese pasta or ramen? And people would say, well, what are you talking about? Same. You know, they're both, you know, they're both Japanese. I say, what about shu, which is a Japanese word for shu pastry, shu or wagashi? They're like, they're both Japanese. And I said, well, what do you think, McDonald's or Isakai? I was well, isn't McDonald's Japanese? So there's, there's kind of this omnivorous sense of everythingness in Tokyo. And people really internalize what they eat and they think of it as their own. I mean, a lot of people think McDonald's is Japanese. They call it Magdo, and it has some uh, Glockovore twist to it, uh, as does uh, Satubo, Starbucks. And uh, yeah, it's just such a part of life that it's regarded as a song. Part of what enchanted me about the Tokyo chapter, too, is that like that kind of cosmopolitanism is the same thing that you open your book with when going to France. Like, if you eat in Paris... My favorite places to go are actually Japanese patisseries or this like Japanese cheese shop um, because there's this like mutual love affair. And I think, you know, so many cities are like that now. So many cities just have immigrant cuisines. They have, you know, the American spin on this or the French spin on this. How do you think that relates or entangles itself with the idea of a national dish? Well, that was kind of the impetus behind the book because I think of myself as a completely globalized cosmopolitan person. I'm a Russian-speaking Jew from New York. In, you know, I live in a dizzyingly multicultural neighborhood in New York, Jackson Heights. I have an apartment in Istanbul from where I'm talking to you now. I speak five languages, like whatever. Uh, who am I? Where is home? Um, and for a lot of us, while traveling, for instance, you go to some remote Andean village and there's ramen. For instance, in indigenous Mexican villages, they call it tallarines cuadratos, the square noodles. They eat more ramen than tortillas because it's really cheap. You can just kind of plonk it in hot water. So you've got this dizzyingly globalized world of cuisine. But as it becomes more globalized, it's almost like a knee-jerk instinct to go into this whole kind of protective mechanism to protect our identities, to protect what we see as our cuisine that might not have been our cuisine 20 years ago, but to kind of uh, retain our sense uh, our sense of who we are and of identity. And you also have these populist politicians, you know, the Bolsonaros and the Trumps and the Putins that are stoking that sense of nationalism and using it for political purposes. So as I write in the book, the global and the local feed off each other. You can't imagine one without the other. And so many of these... Um, protective organizations like, you know, the DOPs, you know, the organization, you know, Verace Pizza Napolitana or the blah, 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 blah. They were all formed in late 80s and 90s. Again, the period that's really important where the rise of neoliberalism. And they were formed to protect what countries or regions or cities regarded as their product from globalization. But then those boutique handcrafted products also became globalized, right? So you have like the global rise of the handcrafted Neapolitan pizza where, you know, it's huge in Japan for instance. So at least all these sort of echoes kind of nesting dolls of identities it's just so fascinating. I'm curious too if you can talk a bit about regionalism and sort of how that interacts with this local versus global debate. I'm thinking of um, your chapter in 
Seville, where you go into tapas um, and all the regional varieties of tapas, which I think is especially interesting in the context of Spain, because actually the first tapas I had wasn't tapas at all. It was pinchos, which is Basque. Uh, yes, exactly. Well, we kind of tend to think that, okay, nationalism can be constructed, but regionalism is something authentic and it's an authentic expression. But think about it, regionalism is just as constructed um, because some regions can travel between different countries. You know, Alsace with German becomes France. You have regions that are divided between countries. Catalonia, the Basque country that you just mentioned. Um, regions can become independent countries. So, in fact, the rise of regionalism, of regionalist sensibility in a lot of countries in Europe especially came with train travel and then later with car tourism. Uh, because people didn't travel before the automobile and, and the train ride. They they went to the spa, they went on the religious pilgrimage, they visited family, but things as tourism, it, it's, it's also quite a later development. And as that developed, regions started promoting themselves. Uh, they started putting attractions on maps. They started, uh, people started writing culinary guidebooks, which is where a lot of the regional specialties um, become presented. There were international fairs or local exhibitions showcasing regional traditions. And at the same time, what was happening is that nations kind of started promoting the idea of diverse but united kind of thing, this almost mini-imperial mini thing. And Andalusia, uh, where Seville is located, is an interesting case study because as I talk to historians, they say, well, until the 18th century, the 19th century even, it didn't have any kind of distinct regional consciousness. What happens is romantic tourists go there and they start exoticizing. You know, remember Carmen, you know, the femme fatales, the torreadors, the toreros, uh, all this kind of picturesque otherness. Um, and they also they also talked about Andalusia as Africa, the way that people talked about Naples as Africa. You know, this is kind of this northern attitude. Um and then Andalusians become fascinated with their own stereotypes by foreigners. So you had all these romantic travelers, you know, kind of stereotyping Andalusia, and they absorb their own stereotype, which is, you know, I call kind of self-orientalization, which is like a very interesting subject as well. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, for all of these disses, it's almost like they don't exist without some kind of outer force sort of forcing them to create themselves or like I brand themselves in a way to compete with other brands. It kind of disillusioned me, I think, by the end. In a lot of ways, a lot of the stories you tell of these national dishes undermines the idea of nationalism, undermines and dispels like these nationalistic myths. Was that was that one of your goals? <laughs> it started out as being one of the goals because it just so much of it seemed fake to me. Um, cause I wrote cookbooks before I talked about national dishes in this kind of cliche way, uh, like everyone else did, but you know, I saw that there were other stories behind it. And as I mentioned, seeing the Soviet Union fall apart and Yugoslavia, uh, you know, living through that kind of nineties moment, again, so much happens in the nineties. Um, it, it, it made me see it like almost live what was happening, but at the same time, uh, no, I came away not not with new respect for nationalism, which I feel still can be a very destructive force, but for how people internalize their identities. Like these days with the internet and with shifting politics, everything is moving very fast, right? 
the Ukraine war is one example. For instance, my mother is from, she was born in Odessa. Her whole family is from Ukraine. She didn't really consider herself Ukrainian. She considered herself Russian-speaking Jew, uh, who emigrated. But suddenly, all of our friends who were in the same, you know, who were from Kiev, but Russian speakers, they suddenly completely rethought their identity. In my mother's birth city of Odessa, uh, which was fairly, you know, anti-nationalist and fairly pro-Russian, it had a very pro-Russian mayor, suddenly everyone switched to Ukrainian, even people who didn't speak Ukrainian. So, like, overnight, you had this global change of identity, and it was very, very, very tragic events that, that led to it. But it can be it, it can be very shifty and very transactional and very quick, but it's really really meaningful. And I've come uh, I've come out with a new respect of how things are internalized, and that it doesn't have to be a long historical process. It doesn't have to be quote unquote authentic because what is authentic anyway? It doesn't even have to be historically real. What matters is how people feel about it. And yes, nationalism can be a very dark force, but it can also feel like a protective mechanism, uh, and food is a huge part of it. We have links in the show notes to Anya von Bremsen's new book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. And in case you missed it, last week's episode dealt with what might perhaps be called America's quixotic national dish, the hot dog. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.